Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to start this morning by reviewing verses 17 through 24, which we covered two weeks ago. Last week, Alvin Latanya preached. He's uh, planning a church in, in Dubai. Two weeks ago, covered verses 17 through 24. I want to review that first, and then we're going to dig deep into verses 25 through 27. So in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 17... Paul shows us what our attitude should be when we see ourselves slipping back into sin. So what's your attitude when you find yourself sliding back into sin? Now, sin is the different things that we do when we're trying to find our joy and pleasure and satisfaction somewhere apart from knowing God in the person of Jesus. So sins like bitterness and lust and greed... Sin is worry and fear and discouragement. Sin is gossip and withholding love or racism. Just the list goes on and on. These are all things that we try to, that we pursue when we're seeking our life, our joy outside of knowing God in Christ. So what's your attitude? How do you feel when you find yourself slipping back into some sin? Sadly, too many churchgoers, when they find themselves sliding back into sin, their attitude is like, well, everybody sins. Uh, we've all got our weaknesses. Surely God understands. But that is not what Paul says our attitude should be. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. So he doesn't just say this I say. He wants us to understand he is now testifying in the Lord, which our ears should perk up. Okay, this is important. This is, I mean, everything Paul says is important, but like he wants us to really emphasize this. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, Gentiles in this verse just refers to people who aren't following Jesus. And so to walk as the Gentiles walk means you're walking as an unbeliever would walk. You are slipping back into some area of sin. So what must have happened is that Paul heard that some of the believers at this church in Ephesus, some of them were starting to slip back into their old habits, their old sinful patterns. And you can feel how concerned Paul is about them. He says, I'm testifying to you in the Lord now. You must no longer walk in those old ways. Stop walking in those old ways. This is really, really serious and urgent and important. And that's what Paul would say to us as well. When we see ourselves slipping back into those old ways, we should say to ourselves, this is urgent, this is important. Paul, if he was standing in front of me, would say, you must no longer walk that way. I'm testifying to you in the Lord. No longer walk in that way. So Paul is saying, don't do that anymore. But he doesn't just say, don't do that anymore. Paul also tells us how to stop doing those things. How? And that's the point of verse 18. Verse 18 is a little puzzling because he tells us why unbelievers sin. What does that have to do with us? 
Well, Paul's point is that the reason we sin is the same reason unbelievers sin. And by understanding why we sin, we can understand how to conquer sin. Just like if you understand why your blood pressure is high, then you can overcome that high blood pressure. In the same way, if we understand why we sin, we can overcome that sin. And look at what Paul says in verse 18. Here's why unbelievers sin, which is also the reason we sin. Verse 18, Paul says, They, and believers, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, here's the illustration we used two weeks ago. We are all hungry for life, for joy, for peace, for meaning. We're all hungry for life, and God created us so that we could find our hunger for life, joy, peace, meaning, satisfied in knowing Him. He is our life. He is our all-satisfying joy, and God created us so that we could find our life in Him. And two weeks ago, we said that the, the life of God, it's like a big dining room. Remember the dining room illustration? Big, big dining room with lots of tables, and these tables are full of the most amazing dishes of food. We have chicken biryani there. We have South African sausages at Burwer. Okay, close. You can correct me afterwards. We have cheesy lasagna. We have sizzling steaks. We have this big chocolate decadent cake sitting there. We have tubs of ice cream. Okay, just this dining room full of the most... This is the, the life of God, okay, that we can enjoy in knowing Him. But right next door to the dining room, there's a little kitchen. And in this little kitchen, there's a small bowl of cold porridge sitting on the table. Now, whenever we find ourselves slipping back into sin, it shows that we have left the dining room and we are in the kitchen, sitting at the table with a little bowl of cold porridge. Now, why would we leave the dining room and go into the kitchen? Based on verse 18, it's because we've let hardness in our hearts grow towards God. We've let our hearts become hard towards God. And when our hearts grow hard towards God, we stop thinking about God. We have temporary ignorance of God. See the word ignorance in verse 18. We have temporary ignorance towards God. And when we have temporary ignorance of God, when we stop thinking about God, we are temporarily alienated from the life of God. So whenever we find ourselves sinning, slipping back into sin, we're in the kitchen. That shows with a little bowl of cold porridge. I mean, the pleasures of sin compared to the pleasures of knowing God are like a little bowl of cold porridge compared to that dining room full of the most amazing food. Okay, so like there's a door then between the kitchen and the dining room, and the door is called ignorance, and it's locked shut with a padlock called hardness of heart. Our hardness of heart has crept in. We've let our hearts grow hard. Now we're not thinking about God. We're ignorant of him, and we are cut off from the life of God. The door is bolted shut. We're stuck in the kitchen. That's what's happening when we're sinning. Does that make sense? Are we clear on that? So how do we overcome sin? Verse 23 is the answer. Paul says, be renewed, 
be made new again, let your minds be renewed again in the spirit of your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How do we do that? We, we cry out to God, forgive me. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, forgive me for my hardness of heart and my sin. Forgive me, Father. Then we ask him, Father, soften my heart. I've let my heart grow hard. By the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, soften this hard heart. Help me. Whenever you pray that prayer from the heart, he will always answer. So soften my heart. And then we open up the scriptures because it's through the word of God that God softens our hearts. We open up the scriptures. God softens our hearts and brings us back to life. So as we do that, we're, we're praying, forgive me. We're praying, soften my heart. We're opening up the scripture. God will go to work. And the lock called hardness of heart will clip open, opens up. The door called ignorance will swing open wide. You're sitting in the kitchen. All of a sudden, mmm, something smells a lot better than this little bowl of porridge here. What's in that door? Oh, yeah, I remember. The presence of God. There's that cheesy lasagna. I hope that, anyway, understand. This is an illustration, okay? All right? The presence of God, knowing him. And so then you turn your back on your sin. You walk through the door, and you're back beholding God's glory in Christ, worshiping him, loving him, enjoying the life of God. That's how it works. That's Paul's point, verses 17 through 24. I wanted to review that because that sets the stage then for verses 25 through 27 where Paul, he deals with two specific areas of sin in our lives. Verse 25, he says, stop lying to each other. And verse 26 and 27, stop being angry with each other. Very powerful. Look at verse 25, what he says about lying. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So what does Paul mean by speaking the truth? He just means telling the truth, not lying. Now notice he's talking especially to believers. He uses the word neighbors there, but then he explains what he means by neighbors in that next line. We are members one of another. So he's talking about believers here. Now, we should tell the truth to everybody believers and those who aren't trusting Christ. But here, Paul is especially focusing on speaking the truth, not lying to our brothers and sisters. Now, let's get specific. What are some ways that we might be tempted to lie to a brother or sister in Christ? I thought of two examples. One is, let's say you're needing to sell a car and you want to get some money for it. And you spread the word and somebody in your home group says, I need to buy a car. Can I come by and look at it? Sure. Comes by, takes it for a test drive, loves the car, pulls up, says, this is amazing. Just a couple questions. Has this car ever been in an accident? Hmm. Now, you know it's been in an accident, okay? And you know that if he knows it's been in an accident, he won't want to spend quite as much money. But it's running fine, isn't it? Uh, no accidents. No accidents. It's a fantastic car. You've just lied to your brother or your sister in Christ. It's not complicated. If it's not the truth, it's a lie. Another example, uh, you're having coffee with somebody, maybe somebody from Grace Church here, just talking, sharing, and, and this person you're talking with says, you know, I've been reading the most powerful uh, book, Christian book. Have you read this book? 
well, you don't want to look like you don't, you're not up on the most recent books, you know. Um, you're going to read it. Nothing you know about it. You, you, it's, it's an awesome book. Yes, I loved it. I, what, what did you think about it? Okay, so you've just lied to your brother or your sister in Christ. So, so these are obvious examples, right? But see, the point I want to make is if it's not the truth, it's a lie. And Paul would say, don't lie to your brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. So think back on recent conversations you've had. Uh, think about recent conversations with your wife or with your husband. Think about recent conversations with close friends. Was everything the truth? Think about conversations with your children or with uh, your parents or extended family members or your home group or other believers. Was everything the truth? That's what Paul's talking about here. He's calling us to always speak the truth and never to lie. Now why? Why is this so important? And did you notice the reason that Paul gives in verse 25? Read it again. Why is it so important that we not lie to each other? Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for... We are members one of another. I hope that in your Bible reading, you're, you're starting to notice more and more, not just the commands that are given, keep noticing those, but also the reasons the biblical authors give for those commands. And you can tell when a, a reason is coming by the word for. That's right here. So the reason is because or for we are members one of another. What does that mean? When a group of believers come together and, and covenant together, we want to be, be a church following Jesus Christ, advancing the kingdom, glorifying his name. Whenever a group of people come together and form a church, the Holy Spirit comes and brings a special togetherness and closeness to them. Just this beautiful supernatural love and togetherness and closeness that's there. And that togetherness and closeness, because it overcomes age barriers and racial differences and cultural differences and just, you know, disagreement and hurt and difficulty differences, because that glorifies Jesus Christ. So the closer we are together, the more Jesus Christ is glorified. But every time we lie to one another, what Paul is saying here, our closeness lessens, diminishes, shrinks. Every time we don't speak the truth to each other, our love, our unity, we may not feel this, but it, it lessens. So let's say that before you had this person to come see your car, you and this brother, you and this sister, you were close together, like shining with 500 watts of glory to Jesus Christ in your love and your togetherness. But after lying to them, that might shrink down to maybe just 200 watts. It's dimmed. It's like a dimmer switch, dimmed when there's a lie told. So Paul is passionate that each church be in unity and love because that glorifies Jesus Christ. People walk in these doors or they walk into your home group and they see the love that's there. It's like... God's here. Jesus is being trusted by these people. Jesus must be glorious to give them such love for each other. But when we lie to each other, that love, that togetherness diminishes and less glory comes to Jesus because of that. So Paul is saying, don't lie. We're members of each other. We're called to be close. Don't lie because it'll harm that. Now how? 
How do you stop lying? It's not easy if you've tried. And lots of people have ideas out in the world, right? Uh, just, just make a resolution that you're not going to lie anymore. Mm. Ask somebody to hold you accountable, okay? Uh, take out a piece of paper. I will not lie. I will not lie. A hundred times, I will not lie, right? Paul has a much more effective approach and a much more satisfying approach, which he describes here in this passage. Far more effective. The way we overcome lying, the way we stop lying, is by understanding why we lie in the first place. What caused that lie? The reason we lie is because our hearts have become hard towards God. When we find ourselves lying, that shows that we have left the dining room. We are sitting in the kitchen with the cold porridge of trying to get more money for my car or trying to impress this person with how well-read I am. And the fact that we're sitting in the kitchen shows that we've let our hearts grow hard and our hardness of heart is like a padlock locking the door of ignorance so that door is closed shut. So we're not, not thinking about God while I'm lying about the car price. We're not thinking about God while I'm lying about which books I haven't read. So the problem, the root problem is our hard hearts. This is so important for us to learn. This is the root problem. Whenever you find yourself slipping back into sin, lying or whatever it might be, the root problem is my heart has become hard towards the Lord. That's the problem. And the way to stop lying then is by having the Holy Spirit soften your hard heart. That's what Paul calls being renewed in the spirit of your minds, verse 23. So what might we do? Here, here's what I might suggest. How about at the beginning of each day, as you get your time with the Lord, pray for God's power to soften your heart even further. God, I know my heart, like, like the old hymn says, prone to wander, prone to feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right? No, pro prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That's how it is. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We could put that in different words and say prone to hardness, right? All of our hearts, although we've been saved, there's still remaining sin, and there's a proneness, there's a, there's a tendency in our hearts to become hard towards the Lord. So at the beginning of each day as you're with the Lord, say, Father, you know my heart, soften my heart. Soften my heart afresh right now. And as you pray that, the lock called hardness of heart will click open, the door will swing wide, and then as you open up God's word and read and pray over the scriptures, You'll smell the aroma coming in from the dining room, right? You'll see people feasting in there. You'll go in, you'll have a little appetizer, and you'll, you'll feast on the life of God as you meet him in the scriptures. And then you'll head into the day full. You'll be full. And, and throughout the day, then, as, as trials or troubles or difficulties come, which can make you get empty again, you, you're just back into the dining room. Another snack. Okay, oh good. You're just getting filled up again. So, so you're heading into the day full, and your heart will be so full that you won't worry about a little bit more money for the car. Your heart will be so full, you won't worry about impressing your friend with the fact that you have read that book or having them know that you haven't read that book. You'll enjoy even more of the life of God. You'll be turning from lying to telling the truth, and as a result, you'll be enjoying even more of the life of 
God. So that's how we stop lying. The problem is hardness of heart. God softened my heart. Forgive me for my hard heart. You open up the scriptures. You feed on the life of God. Your heart gets full. That'll keep you turning away from sin and feasting on God in the dining room. That's what Paul says in verse 25. Stop lying to each other. And the way you do that is because of what he said in verses 17 through 24. So are we clear on not lying to each other? We got that? Okay, now there's one more big one Paul brings in here. Don't be angry with each other. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry, he says, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and to give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, what's Paul commanding here? Why does he say, be angry and do not sin? Well, what that must mean is that not all anger is sinful, right? So not all anger is sinful. Now, lots of anger is sinful. That's why in verse 31, Paul says, put away all anger. So lots and lots of anger is sinful, but not all of it is. And we know that not all anger is sinful because Jesus was angry and Jesus never sinned. So how can you tell if your anger is righteous or sinful? And I think the best, simplest way is by looking at why you're angry. Why, what's, what's making you angry? Is it that God's glory is being dishonored? That would be righteous anger. Is it that somebody who's needy or um, struggling, a widow or orphan, is being oppressed in some way? Well, that could be righteous anger. But if your anger is just focused on you, it's not righteous anger. It's sinful anger. Here's an example. Let's say your home group is uh, going to... Anybody been on the donut boats, Eastern Mangroves? Oh, just a few. Okay, well. Uh, so let's say your home group is going to the donut boats. You're inviting friends to join you. You're going to be out there and just, you know, puttering around. And uh, so you're out there in your donut boat with a couple people from your home group. And, and one of the people there needs to make a quick emergency phone call. Hey, can I borrow your cell phone? No problem. Give them your, your phone. They make the phone call. Okay, hang up, get it done. But somehow... At that point, they let it pop out of their hands and it falls into the water and there it goes, blah, 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 all the way to the bottom. Okay, now, um, they say, I'm so sorry. Look, as soon as I can save up some money, I'm, I will buy you a phone. I'm going to replace that phone. Uh, okay, but your phone's gone now. Terrible inconvenience. And, and you can feel this anger start to rise up within you, right? I mean, you just imagine, okay? The anger is rising up inside of you. Now, is that anger righteous or is that anger sinful? Well, think about why are you angry? Is it because God's glory is being dishonored? No. Is it because some oppressed person is being uh, abused in some way? No. Why are you angry? Because your phone. That's why you're angry. How could he have dropped the phone? Are you kidding me? I mean, how clumsy can you be? He should have been more careful. This is my phone. Okay, that's why you're angry. And so that anger is not righteous anger. That anger is sinful anger. And just like any sin, at that point, you should see, I'm no longer in the dining room. I'm in the kitchen with my little bowl of cold porridge. 
My heart has become hard towards God. I'm not even thinking about God anymore. I've got ignorance towards God, and I'm not experiencing the life of God anymore. Now, why do I say that you're not thinking about God anymore? Well, think about it. <clears throat> Your anger shows that you're not seeing who God is. You're not seeing, for example, that God is sovereign over everything. Oh, we need to understand this, church. God is sovereign over everything, even people's clumsy actions. God's sovereign over everything. Could God have stopped that person from dropping the phone? <laughs> Easy. God didn't stop it, which means that God purposefully allowed that to take place. Ultimately, this was part of God's plan. Ultimately. But you're not thinking about that right now. And you're saying, how could he have dropped that phone? Are you kidding me? That's my phone. It's in the water now. What, this is going to be so inconvenient. Are you thinking about God's sovereignty at that moment? No. You're not thinking about God at all. Not only are you not thinking about God's sovereignty, you're not thinking about God's goodness. I've been thinking about Lamentations 3, 22 through 25 lately. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. And his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Well, if God's loving kindnesses never cease, and that means they didn't cease when this person clumsily dropped your phone in the water. Did he stop being loving kind to you at that moment? No. Well, how could this be part of God's loving kindness? Well, Understand God's purpose in trials. There's lots of different purposes. He's doing hundreds of different things, but at every trial's heart is the fact that he's saying, trust me, more joy in me is going to come to you through this difficulty. Trust me. And that means we need to understand that God is all-satisfying and that knowing God more deeply is so satisfying and so rich and so real, it far more than makes up for the loss of your phone. So you see that when you're angry, you're not thinking about God. The door of ignorance is shut. It's locked with the padlock of hardness of heart. You're temporarily alienated from the life of God. You're sitting there with your bowl of cold porridge. You see that? That's what's happening when you're angry. Okay, you're all looking a little shocked at this point. Okay, that, that is what's happening when you're angry. Yeah, but they dropped the phone. I understand they dropped the phone. And I understand that that makes you angry, but that's not the the root reason why you're angry is that there's hardness of heart, which is making you not think about God. There's alienation from the life of God. You're temporarily alienated from his life. That's why you're angry. And Paul says, when we become angry and our anger is sinful, we must not let the sun go down on our anger, which means we must immediately, the clock is ticking we must immediately overcome our anger. Do you feel that? It's like, there goes the sun. Okay, do you feel that? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, why? Why is it so urgent? Look at verses 26 and 27 again. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. If we allow our anger to continue, Paul says, we're going to give an opportunity to the devil. So if, if you let that anger stay in your heart, if you, if you nurture that grudge, you know how that is. You, you, just, you enjoy feeling angry about that person. 
Man, I can't believe he did that. What an idiot. Right? Can you believe it? And then you have these imaginary conversations. Like, I'm going to sit him down sometime. And say, I gave you my phone and you dropped it? What's wrong with you? Oh, it feels so good to have this imaginary conversation, right? Okay, well, so you're not letting the, I mean, you're letting the sun go down on your anger at that point in time. You're letting it fester. You're letting it bubble, bubble, toil and trouble, right? It, it, it's, it's a problem. And when you're doing that, you're opening your heart up to the devil's work. You're giving him an opportunity, and there is nothing more dangerous than that. Take the story of Saul. Remember King Saul in the Old Testament? King over Israel. But David started to become more popular than him. Remember that? They were all singing, Saul has conquered his thousands. David conquers tens of thousands. And Saul's hearing that song saying, wait a minute. <laughs> what about me? And Saul became angry. And he let the sun go down on his anger night after night after night after night. And you read the story starting in 1 Samuel 18, and you just see how what starts to happen is the devil uses Saul's anger to enslave him. It twists his thinking. It distorts his sense of what's right and wrong. Saul just becomes this raving lunatic. At one point, he picks up a spear, throws it at David in his, in his, in his palace, even his son, Jonathan, when he found out that he was a friend of David, his, Saul tried to kill his son, Jonathan. So Satan used Saul's anger to enslave and twist and ultimately destroy him. And so when we become angry and our anger is not righteous, it is urgent that we not let the sun go down on our anger. So how do we do that? How do we overcome our anger? Now, some people will say, you know, anger just can't be overcome. Anger is a genuine feeling in your heart. And you should never try to squelch feelings, because if you squelch them, they'll end up like a volcano erupting even worse later on. And you, you can't just willpower your way to not being angry. And that's true. You can't willpower your way to not being angry. But... Even the most intense feelings of anger change when your heart is softened so you're no longer willfully ignorant of God and that you start to see all that you have in God. You may not believe me. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine your, your phone's been lost and you're driving home after the donut boat's catastrophe. Okay, you're driving, you're driving home after the catastrophe. Fuming, angry, murmuring, imaginary conversations... You get home, and on the kitchen table, there's a special delivery letter. Hmm. You open it up. It's from a lawyer. The lawyer tells you that there's an uncle you didn't even know you had. And this uncle is giving you his entire estate, 50 million dirhams. The check will be deposited to your bank. Now, at that moment, how angry are you feeling about your phone? What phone? <laughs> right, I'll, I'll buy AT&T or 50 million dollars, not quite, but anyway. Right, so what's, has your feelings changed? Totally, right? Completely, did, did they change because I'm not gonna be angry, I'm not gonna be angry, is that how they changed? No, you just realized you have something you didn't know you had and that anger just changes 
Now, here's the point. Knowing God in Christ is worth infinitely more than 50 million Durham. And even more than a lost phone. Right? To know Jesus Christ as your Savior, to know him as your forgiver, one who forgives you, to know Christ as your counselor, to know Jesus Christ as your God, like Thomas says, my Lord and my God, to know Jesus Christ as your friend, as your comfort, as your strength, as your resurrector, as your hope, as your prize, as your joy, to know Jesus Christ in, in who he is, knowing him is worth infinitely more than 50 million dirhams or a lost phone. So why are you angry then? It's because your heart has become hard. The door of ignorance is slammed shut. You are not thinking about Jesus at that point. All you're thinking about is the phone. Do you see how that works? And the way you'll get freed from that anger is by having God soften your heart so the door of ignorance swings wide and you start to see once again what you have in Christ and your heart will be profoundly changed and set free from anger. How do you do that? Four steps. Four steps. Well, first of all, it's verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's how you do it. Okay, and here's, here's what that means. Four steps. First, ask God to forgive you for your anger. Anger is sin. You've allowed your heart to get hard. You've been willingly ignorant of him. You've been making an idol out of the phone or whatever it might be. Ask God to forgive you for your anger, for your hardness of heart. And here's the good news. Jesus Christ died to pay for the sins of all those who would trust him. Beautiful. I mean, look, look at the mercy of Christ. Look at the love of Jesus Christ, the compassion of Jesus Christ. He paid for the sins of all, all the sins, past, present, and future, of all those who would trust him. And so as you turn to Jesus and forgive me for my anger, my hardness of heart, forgive me, you will receive fresh assurance that you are completely forgiven, restored, reconciled. So ask for forgiveness for your anger. Second, ask God to soften your heart. Now, God uses his word. He promises to use his word to soften your heart. So pray and say, God, as you've promised, use your word now as I open it up to make this heart soft. It's hard. Help me. I'm full of anger. I'm full of bitterness. Please, Lord, come and soften this heart. And he will. He will soften your heart. So once again, you see and feel all that you have in the dining room all that you have in Christ. Then third, open the Bible and feast on the riches of Christ. Here's a verse I've been thinking about lately. Just take it as an example. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Such a powerful statement from Paul. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Wow. What an amazing statement. Paul counts everything as loss in comparison with the riches of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. That's the dining room. Everything else is little bowls of oatmeal, cold, moldy, whatever. That's the dining room. I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, 
I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Count all things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So pray over that verse or whatever verse you choose. Pray over the scripture slowly. Ask God to help you see the truth of who he is in Christ and to help you feel the truth of who he is in Christ. And you can know Jesus in his power, in his compassion, in his strength, in his guidance and forgiveness, promises, everything. So open the Bible and feast on the riches of Christ. And then fourth, keep praying and feasting until the Spirit changes your heart. He will. Keep praying, keep feasting until the Spirit changes your heart. The Holy Spirit will use his word to reveal Jesus to you so that once again, you see and feel all that Jesus is. Once again, you're smelling the aroma coming from the dining room. Once again, you're turning your back on sin. Your heart is softened. You're heading into the dining room and you're feasting on Christ. And when that happens, you'll be filled. Filled. Far more filled than having that phone back or having that never be lost. Far more filled than getting a little more money from the car. Far more filled than having your friend think that you're such a well-read person. Infinitely far more filled than any sin could ever fill you. You'll be filled with the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. He will do that. So, so Grace Church, here's what God's calling us to this morning. Don't lie to each other. Don't be angry with each other. Stop lying. Stop being angry. If there's relationships here where there's anger right now, first pray, have God soften your heart, show you his glory, fill your soul feasting in the dining room. Get rid of that anger. Do that. No more lying. No more anger because of the life of God that we can have. That's what Paul is calling us to, and that's what he's promising us. Now, if, if you're here this morning and you're not yet trusting Jesus, do you see what the Christian life involves? Do you see the reality of knowing God in Jesus Christ and being forgiven for your sins and having his joy and presence fill you in knowing the God of the universe through Jesus? That's the only reason we Christians can be loving, can not lie, can be forgiving, can avoid anger. It's because he fills our hearts so much and you can experience the exact same by bending your knee before the Lord Jesus, asking him to forgive you, asking him to change you, asking him to fill you with his life. He will do that. He promises. Let's stand together. God, I pray that you bring your power upon us as a church right now. Lord, Abu Dhabi needs churches. We want to be one of them where we are speaking the truth to each other. We are not angry at each other. And as a result, your glory is shining forth from us. Lord, we want to be all that you want us to be to fulfill what you have for us to do here in Abu Dhabi. So we give ourselves to you afresh. We cannot do this on our own. 
but you promise that you will soften our hearts as we confess. You will soften our hearts as we open up your word. You will soften our hearts as we pray over the scriptures. So Lord, I pray for a heart-softening work to be poured out upon us even now, Lord, as we sing and worship you with this song. So come and work, I pray in Jesus' name.